All right. So um, there are some, some, uh, some new faces. So my name is Sam. Um, by God's grace, I'm one of the elders here. And, and it's my joy to be able to speak to you guys this morning on the next part of our series, uh, which is the Messiah, seeing Jesus in the covenants and promises of redemption, right? We started this last week. Um, we're working through some of the covenants and promises in the Old Testament. Um, we started last week with Abraham, I'm sorry, Adam and Noah. This week we'll be talking about Abraham. And that was the triangle. If we got that first slide, Rob, um, that was our triangle. Do you guys remember this? The large triangle that tapers down to the pointed triangle, okay? And the reason being for that, as we'll go through this morning, is God's promises of redemption and his covenants start vague, but over time, through the Old Testament covenants and promises he continues to make, they get more specific, okay? They narrow. We begin to see how he's going to fulfill the things that he originally said and who's going to be the one to do it, all right? And as I've said a few times before, up here in, in various contexts, um, sometimes I think it's good for us to sort of zoom out and ask ourselves, um, why do we do what we do, okay, as Christians? Like, why do we have the practices that we have? And one of those things is Christmas, right? Why is it that this time of year, entire, virtually the entire world celebrates the birth of a nondescript peasant boy born in a cattle stall in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, okay? If that's not a very significant individual, then we are collectively crazy for doing that, and we're wasting a lot of time, all right? But I would argue, as we're going to find out today, and as we started last week, uh, we're not crazy because it is right that the entire world celebrates the birth of a peasant boy in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. So we're going to be in Genesis primarily, Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, and 26, and Galatians 3, and a little bit of Romans 4, okay? But primarily we're going to be in Genesis 12 this morning and in Galatians 3 because we're going to see what God promised to Abraham because this is the next covenant in our series of covenants, and then we're going to see what Paul has to say about that, all right? But before we get too far into that, I want to recap us from last week when Eric started this by talking about Adam and Noah. So, last week, on the far left side of the triangle, it'll come back, the far left side of the triangle, we started with Noah and Adam. And in that, which was primarily Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then the flood, God created man for the express purpose of being in covenant relationship with him. That is why God created man, to be in covenant relationship with him and so that man would glorify God, okay? It would be an image bearer of God's on the earth. And Adam, as the representative head of creation, failed. He failed God and sinned against him, and what would happen to our fellowship with God? It was broken, okay? That's Genesis 3. That's the fall. But in Genesis 3, God made a promise that one day there would be someone, a seed or offspring. I'm going to use those words interchangeably this morning because they are used interchangeably in Genesis. A seed or an offspring would come from the woman who would destroy the serpent and undo the effects of the curse in the fall, okay? Genesis 3.15, that's called the Proto-Evangelium in big words. First promise of the good news, okay? So that's the first hint, a very vague hint. A person will come someday and undo what is wrong. But that's as specific as it got in Genesis 3. All right? And then as more people filled the earth, corruption actually got worse. In fact, it got so bad that God determined to end all of human life with the flood. We're familiar with that narrative. But because of his covenant with all of his creation, he did not completely obliterate humanity. Right? He spared Noah and his family. And Noah became a sort of new Adam, right? Because at that point, it was just Noah and his family in a totally wiped clean earth, right? So he becomes a new representative head of humanity and of all creation. However, we read about three more sentences and we find out that Noah fails, right? Almost immediately, Noah fails. 
So the fresh start after the flood was still not enough to restore humanity's fellowship with God. But even though humanity continued from Noah on to fail, God's promises that he had made were not going to fail, and he was still going to bring those to pass, okay? So that's where we find ourselves this morning. That was Genesis 1 through 11. And we've got to remember, there's a big point that Eric made last week, which is essentially the point of the series, is that God has one unifying, overarching plan of what he's doing in Scripture, okay? Scripture is not a disjointed bunch of narratives, stories, mainly designed to help us improve our behavior, but have nothing to do with each other. That's not what Scripture is, okay? Scripture is a cohesive story pointing in a certain direction, okay? There is a meta-narrative to Scripture, which is redemption through Christ, and as we look at the different parts of the story, we're going to see how they connect to the whole. Does that make sense? Okay. So, to summarize where we're at in this series and after last week, the whole idea is that God's plan is perfect and seamless from creation to new creation, with the covenants and promises of redemption unfolding God's one redemptive plan in Christ. Although God's plan never deviates from its path, the revelation of that plan to the people begins vague and then becomes more specific over time. The triangle is narrowing. Additionally, we see the movement over time of shadows to substance. That's biblical language. Shadows, something that we could see, but not clearly, to substance in Christ. God will one day deliver the creation from the curse of sin through the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. That promise, the first promise of redemption, begins vague, but over time we see with continued specificity who it will be and how he will accomplish this. So if in fact, as I said, there is a main story to Scripture, then the question we're going to answer today is how does Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham and his promises to Abraham fit into the main story? That's what we're looking at today. And there's two things we're going to do to answer that question. The first one is we're going to say, what, we're going to see what did God say to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants? What did he say to them? What did he promise them? What is he going to do? And then we're going to ask the question to help ourselves understand that. How did Paul understand what was meant by that? Okay. And why Paul? Why do we go to Paul to help us understand Genesis? It's because we want, we want Scripture to interpret Scripture, right? Because it's very clear that Jesus taught his disciples what the Old Testament said about himself. And then the disciples, in turn, taught us, right? So as we look to the apostles to help us understand the Old Testament, we're looking to see what they understood from Jesus about what the Old Testament said about Jesus. That's why we go to Paul to help us understand Genesis. Does that make sense? Because Paul has a lot to say about Abraham. So beginning in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, this is what we call the call of Abram. Now, he's called Abram initially, and God later changes his name to Abraham. I'm going to use Abraham and Abram interchangeably this morning. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is the call of Abram, okay? Again, later called Abraham. And God promises here in Genesis 12 to make Abraham into a great nation, to bless Abram, to make his name great, to make him a blessing, to bless those who bless him and curse those who dishonor him, and to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham, okay? And as Genesis unfolds, <clears throat> and we see the story of Abraham continuing to unfold, God's covenant relationship with Abraham and his promises to Abraham are front and center of God's relationship with Abram from the rest of Genesis, all right? So in Genesis 15, 
God ratifies his covenant with Abraham in a ceremony that we'll talk about in a minute. In Genesis 17, God gives a sign of the covenant to Abraham, that's circumcision. We'll talk about that. And then he promises the land to Abraham's descendants. And then in Genesis 22, God reiterates this promise to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring, which becomes very important. And in Genesis 26, God reiterates it again to Isaac. So if you go to Genesis 15, and let me just say right here, we are going to fly over this at like 90,000 feet, okay? And that kills me to do that, honestly. But we have to do that for the sake of getting this all wrapped up into one morning. So we're going to fly over this at 90,000 feet. If you feel like we're going fast, it's because we're going fast. But just, we'll see how it all plays out. Genesis 15. So we're in verse 9 of Genesis 15. This is what's called the, cer- the cutting ceremony. Why is that? Well, God said to Abraham, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So what, what is that about? Well, this is actually this ceremony here where these animals are taken, which sounds very strange to us. These animals are taken and they're cut in half, which if anyone's ever cut an animal in half, I have, it's a bloody, messy process, all right? So you've got all these animals dead, cut in half, and you've got these halves laying there. What is going on? Well, this is actually what they used to do in ancient Near Eastern treaties, okay? This was a practice. This is something we're not familiar with because we don't do this, but they did this. And what would happen is in a covenant ceremony, these animals would be cut in half. It was gory and gruesome and the people would pass through between the cut animal pieces. And the symbolism of that was basically saying, if I fail to uphold my end of this covenant treaty, let it be to me as it was done to these animals, right? Let me be cut in half if I do not uphold my end of this covenant, right? That was why they would walk through those cut pieces. But in this vision, which is very interesting, God makes a covenant with Abram, and one individual goes through the cut pieces. But it's an agreement between two. So God makes a covenant with Abraham. Those are the two parties. And one of the parties, it's not Abraham, passes through the pieces. So what's the deal with that? Well, who takes on himself all the responsibility for fulfilling the covenant and all the curses of the covenant if it's not fulfilled? God does. God does it himself. God makes a covenant with Abraham and he accepts on himself all of the responsibility for upholding it and making it happen. And he himself will be the one to pay the price if it doesn't get fulfilled, okay? Now, a a word of pastoral admonition here for a second. When we come to a passage like this, this is a great example of this. You come to a very strange passage, like smoking fire pots going in between cut up chunks of dead animals, right? Please, when you read a passage like this, don't just blow by it, okay? Because I hope you understand as we talk about this this morning, this is going to be really significant. Why it happened the way it happened. Why did the smoking fire pot go between the cut pieces of the animal, right? If you read a passage like that that's very odd, and you just, that was weird, and you move on to something else that's maybe easier or feels more relevant, you're going to miss big things, okay? Especially in the Old Testament when there's a lot of stuff that was just a different culture that we need to do a little bit of legwork to understand. 
So when you come a passage like that, please just take the five minutes or the minute or the hour and get out your illustrated Bible dictionary or your good study Bible. Text me or Eric or Jimmy and just say, hey, what is going on here? Help me. I want to understand this because it seems important, but it's also very strange. What's the deal, right? And, and figure out what the deal is with that because it's, it's very significant, all right? Passages like this are weird, but really important. Does that make sense? So we got a covenant ceremony. God makes a covenant with Abraham, accepts all the responsibility for the covenant on himself. And then we go to Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, God reaffirms his promise to Abraham and Abraham's offspring, which is very significant, okay? It's promised to Abraham and Abraham's offspring. I'm in verse 15 of Genesis 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, right? We just saw it, by myself. I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven that is the sand on the seashore. And your offspring, singular, interesting, shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Interesting. So the promises given to Abraham are also given to Abraham's offspring, which will be many, but one of them, a singular offspring, shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in that offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Hmm. And in Genesis 26, God reiterates the same thing he just said to Abraham, to Abraham's son, Isaac. So this is what the Bible says about God's promises to Abraham, okay? There's going to be land, there's going to be offspring, and there's going to be blessing. But before we figure out what it means, we have to make sure we do our due diligence. We've got to read Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22 in light of Genesis 1 through 11, right? Especially because they're written by the same author at the same time in the same book to the same people. So Genesis 12 does not come in a vacuum. It comes on the heels of Genesis 1 through 11, all right? So we have to ask, to get Genesis 12 right, is there a connection between Genesis 12 and what Moses just wrote about in Genesis 3, right? After Genesis 3, what are we left expecting? We're left expecting that an individual will come from the line of Adam and Eve who will crush the head of the serpent, Satan, though he himself is wounded by the serpent, which is the first indication in Scripture, as I said, that the effects of the fall and the curse are going to be undone by somebody, right? So we ask when we get to Genesis 12, did the plan that God started in Genesis 3 to redeem the world by a son of Adam and Eve is that a different plan than what God is doing in Genesis 12, right? Has he started a different thing with Abraham's family than he did with Adam? And the answer to that would be no, it's not. It's the same plan. The triangle has narrowed a little bit. So it went from Adam and Noah to Abraham's family, right? So we see that there's an offspring of Abraham that's promised, that's coming, that's going to bless the whole world, that's going to be the son of Eve that's going to turn back the curse and crush the serpent. Does that make sense? There's a line that started with Adam that now runs through Abraham and his family. So we ask the question then, at that point, who gets the promises made to Abraham and his offspring and how? If they're connected to Genesis 3 and they have something to do with the undoing of the curse and sin and the restoration of the world, how do we get the promises? Who gets them and how do they get them? Right? So we go to Galatians 3. So flip over to Galatians 3 for a minute. And we're going to be in more or less all of Galatians 3. And as we read Galatians 3, listen to what Paul says to the church in Galatia about 
Abraham and the blessings given and promised to Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a direct quote from Genesis 15. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So to get the blessings promised to Abraham, you have to be of faith like Abraham. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So the blessings of Abraham come to the nations through Christ. How's that going to work? Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now look down at verse 25. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. And what does that make you? Heirs, according to promise. Okay? So Paul understands that the promised blessing given to Abraham and his offspring will come to his offspring, who is Christ. So Abraham has a singular offspring who gets all of those blessings, even as he has a many plural offspring. That's us, right? And what does Matthew open his gospel with? A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham, right? So Jesus is the, the true offspring of Abraham, okay? Paul argues that the singular seed of Abraham is Christ. Therefore, the promises given to Abraham belong to Christ, okay? And the way in which all the families of the earth were to be blessed was through the offspring of Abraham. So if Jesus is the offspring and the offspring is the way in which the world is blessed, how are all the nations of the world blessed? Through Christ. Does that make sense? That's how it works in the promises and blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. The world gets those 
the nations of the world get those through Christ. So as we are incorporated into Christ by faith, which is the point of Galatians 3, all of the promised blessings given to Abraham are given to us as co-heirs with Christ, who is the heir. And even the Gentiles, like us, get to share in that promise, right? That's why it says that the scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, built into the Abrahamic covenant at the time that Moses wrote about it, was the understanding that the Gentiles would be brought into the promises of God through the offspring of Abraham as the, quote, nations were blessed. Does that make sense? That's why we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, because we are in Christ who is Abraham's true offspring, right? Since Christ has come, those who have put their faith in him are sons of Abraham, for we have put on Christ, and since we are in Christ who is the offspring of Abraham that the scriptures anticipated, we are Abraham's promised multitude of offspring, the ultimate fulfillment of the great nation he was promised, and heirs according to the promise. We are heirs because Christ is the heir and we are in him. And what are we co-heirs of? The blessings that he was promised and what are the blessings that God has intended and promised from the very beginning? Fellowship with God in paradise. More on that in a minute. But one thing we got to note here, why does it have to be Christ to be the offspring of Abraham? Okay, Why is it such a big deal that Jesus is the one who is the offspring of Abraham? Why couldn't it be somebody else? Well, it's because of the nature of the covenant, right? The covenant, uh, let me quote here. The ultimate fulfillment of the covenant is grounded in God's promises. We saw that in Genesis 15. He makes it unilaterally. But the means of fulfillment will come through Abraham's and his descendants' obedience. That does come up in, in the later chapters. He says, because you have obeyed me, right? It's expected that Abraham and his descendants will exercise obedience to the Lord, and then the blessings will come. Well, the tension between God's promise and the necessity of obedience in the covenant relationship becomes clearer as the storyline progresses, because everyone keeps failing. So how's it going to happen? How are the blessings going to come? God promised that they would come, but they had to be obedient, and they're not obedient. So how are they going to come? There's a tension there. It's crucial for understanding the nature and progression of the covenants as they reach their appointed fulfillment in Christ. That is, when the larger canonical story is considered, the conditions of the covenant are met by God himself. When he sends his obedient son, the seed of Abraham, to fulfill the demands of the covenant. There is no one else that could have been obedient in order that the covenant would be fulfilled and the promises would come. There's only one that isn't marred and stained by sin. It's God, the Son himself. That's why he is the true offspring of Abraham and the only one through whom those blessings could ever be fully realized. So the true and singular seed of offspring, or offspring of Abraham is Christ. Therefore, the promises given to Abraham and his descendants belong to Jesus. The way in which all the families of the earth were to be blessed was through the seed or offspring. Therefore, Jesus is the way in which all the families of the earth are blessed. It is through the Abrahamic covenant that God will undo the effects of sin and death and bring a new creation. Remember, they're connected. Genesis 12 and Genesis 3 are connected. It is only through Abraham and his seed that we will have a recovery of the divine goal for creation and for humans. That is, the establishment of God's kingdom and divine rule over this world through this redeemed human society. This is ultimately fulfilled in the arrival of the new covenant, the church as God's royal priesthood and holy nation, right? That's what First Peter says. We're a holy nation. And the consummate state of the new creation. In this light, it is best to view the Abrahamic covenant as the means by which God will fulfill his promises for humanity, especially in light of Genesis 3.15. Right? 
Christ is the way that the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled, which is the way the promises of Genesis 3 are brought to pass. Now, you ask, as you should, what about the land? What about the land that Abraham was promised? How does that work, right? That was my biggest question as I wrestled through this. What about the land? Because he said to Abraham, you're going to have this piece of land, here to here to here, right? What about that? Well, just as God did not intend to only bless one family, namely Abraham and his biological descendants, but all the families of the earth, he did not intend to give his people only one small section of the earth, but the whole earth itself. The, the promised land of Canaan was a shadow of the greater reality to come, which is a new heavens and a whole new earth. Okay? The land promise, and I'm going to unpack this in a second. We're going to see how this works. The land promise is God's commitment to his creation purposes, established at creation to Adam. The land promise is also God working out his promise to turn back the curse through a son of Eve and will eventually reach fulfillment in a new creation, which is actually something that Abraham himself, according to Hebrews, longed to see. So the sliver of land that God gave to Abraham and his biological descendants, okay, was the first step in restoring the entire world, okay? And if you look at Genesis 22 and 26, you can tell from the very beginning when God made this promise to Adam, excuse me, to Abraham, that there was an expansion of the land built into the promise, okay? Lands in chapter 26 is very clearly plural. He promises to give them not just this land, but these lands. And in Genesis 22, the offspring of Abram that is given the land, is, it says it's taking back the gates of his enemies. There's a pushing back of enemy territory by the offspring of Abraham, right? He's reclaiming something, which is the lands, plural. The earth is being reclaimed, retaken, taken back by the offspring of Abraham. And in Romans 4, Paul recognizes that early on in the Abraham, like from the very beginning, the Abrahamic covenant included the whole earth. How does Paul know that? Why does Paul say that? Well, listen to Romans 4. Paul says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. How can Paul say that? How can Paul say when Abraham was promised a specific piece of land in Genesis, which is what Genesis says, how can Paul say, actually, he was promised the world, right? Is he changing Genesis, right? Well, no, if the intention from the beginning was to give Abraham and his descendants the world, right? The land in Genesis becomes the future world that belongs to the people of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The land promised in the Old Testament anticipates and is fulfilled in the eschatological inheritance awaiting the people of God, right? It was the beginning of something much greater, namely the new heavens and new earth. The restoration of the earth, which was promised back in Genesis 3, is working out through the Abrahamic covenant. That's why Hebrews 11, 8 through 16, says that Abraham himself was expecting something eternal, even as he was promised something physical. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And Abraham went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Jacob and Isaac, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So even as Abraham went to live in a physical land, he knew and looked forward to an eternal city whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive 
even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead. That's how old Abraham was. He was as good as dead. From one man were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So even Abraham, as he was promised the physical land, which was a taste of something greater, was himself already looking forward to an eternal heavenly city where God dwells with his people perfectly again, right? From the very beginning, the Abrahamic promise of the land was the promise of something big. And the major prophets pick up on that as well. Jeremiah talks about this, Ezekiel talks about this, and Isaiah talks about it. And we'll talk about Isaiah for a minute because we just finished a series on that. Do you remember when we talked about the suffering servant in Isaiah, right? The suffering servant in Isaiah accomplishes redemption for his people. We remember this, right? He accomplishes the forgiveness of sins for his people so they can be in right fellowship with God. The sin problem is dealt with by the suffering servant in Isaiah. So what does Isaiah 49 say? It says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Okay? The accomplished redemption of the servant in Isaiah always was designed to expand to the ends of the earth. People from every nation, every tribe, every tongue were going to be blessed through the work of the servant. And how does Isaiah end? What happens at the end of Isaiah 65 and 66? There's a new heavens and a new earth, right? So the work of the servant in Isaiah, which, spoiler alert, is Abraham's offspring, is Jesus, is accomplishing redemption for all peoples. And at the end of it all, what do we get? We get a new heavens and a new earth. The whole thing is made new, right? Everything is restored. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear for their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So the new heavens and the new earth are the substance of the shadow, which was the promised land to Abraham, and the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Does that make sense? There was a time where Abraham's biological descendants lived in a physical place called Canaan and did enjoy some limited blessings for a time, and they lost it because they were sinful, right? That was the shadow. That was the taste of something bigger that was going to be fulfilled in Christ because he is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. Now, what about the sign of the covenant? How does that work, right? Remember in Genesis 17, what did God say to Abraham? He said in Genesis 17, 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So there was a physical sign, circumcision, okay? given to Abraham and his biological descendants as a marker of the covenant that God had made with him. There was a sign, a physical sign, circumcision. But from the very beginning, that physical sign of circumcision was designed to be, again, 
a shadow of a greater substance that was coming in Christ. And what is that? Circumcision of the heart, right? Because what does Jeremiah and Exodus and Deuteronomy all say about the heart? Well, and why use the language of circumcision and uncircumcision? Well, biblically, that language, an uncircumcised heart, according to Jeremiah, or I'm sorry, an uncircumcised ear, according to Jeremiah, is an ear that doesn't listen, okay? If your ears are not circumcised, they don't listen. Exodus says that if your lips are uncircumcised, they don't speak, right? So a heart that is uncircumcised is a heart that doesn't work. It doesn't have a right relationship to God, okay? It's full of sin. It doesn't live in covenant faithfulness to him. It doesn't reflect him properly, right? It doesn't worship him as it should. So from the very beginning, starting in Deuteronomy, which was written as part of the Pentateuch, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, so that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They all work together. In Deuteronomy 10 and Jeremiah 4 also, the people of God were told that they needed their hearts circumcised. Circumcision was always meant to be something greater than a physical sign, okay? And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God promised that he was going to do this for his people. He was going to circumcise their hearts because only people with circumcised hearts, that is hearts that work, are able to be in right covenant fellowship with their God, okay? So circumcision, the physical circumcision given to Abraham and his descendants to mark them as members of the covenant community was, quote, the external sign of devotion to Yahweh, but was not indicative of the internal reality of the people's wicked, stubborn hearts. This external sign of circumcision foreshadowed the internal circumcision of the heart that Deuteronomy employs in its description of the people of God after they return from exile. Okay? And what does Paul say about circumcision of the heart in Romans 2? Romans 2.28 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And in speaking of Abraham, in Romans 4, Paul says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that is physically, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It's always been a matter of the heart, right? And Colossians 2 says that, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and all authority. In him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. This is the exact same thing that Ezekiel promised in Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36. There was going to be a time in a new covenant when God was going to give his people who had hearts of stone, what was he going to give them? A heart of flesh. A heart that worked, right? Because apart from getting a heart that works, you can't ever be in right relationship with God because your heart is full of sin. It doesn't work. That's why when we talked about Isaiah, we kept harping on it over and over. 
Isaiah and the suffering servant were dealing with the sin issue, right? And that's why Eric said last week probably 10 times, the individual who accomplishes everything promised in Genesis 3 and everything promised in Genesis 12 has to be an individual who himself has no sin. He has to have no sin of his own to be able to deal with our sin. Again, that's why it can only ever be one individual who could pull all of this off because only one individual has ever been unstained by sin, and that's Christ, right? And I just want to say at this moment, if you're listening to this and you don't know Christ, okay, if you recognize, I, I don't have a new heart. I don't love the Lord. I'm not in Christ. All of these blessings that are promised to Abraham and to his descendants, all these promises of new heavens and a new earth, those are for those who are in Christ who have been made new. And if, and if that isn't you and you recognize that the Lord has laid that on your heart, that you need a new one and that you need your sins forgiven, then I want, after we're done talking this morning, I want to talk to you about that. I want you to understand. I want to explain to you. I want to sit down with you and talk about what does it mean for you to know Christ by faith and be a new creation in Christ with a new heart and to receive all of these blessings promised to Abraham, the new heavens and the new earth. Because apart from Christ, an eternity in a new heavens and a new earth with the people of God forever will not be for you. You need that to be given to you in Christ. So, if you feel like, at this point, we're studying an iceberg, and we have looked at about six inches of ice, and there's a thousand feet below the surface of the water, you are right about that, okay? I told you we are going to fly over this at 90,000 feet. We're at 90,000 feet and climbing. But I want us to understand, if we get just one thing out of this, that the main point of God's covenant with Abraham, the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham to bless the world, to give Abraham's offspring the land, which ultimately is the new heavens and the new earth, all of that points to, predicts, and finds its fulfillment in Christ. Okay? Because we keep saying, all of that was a shadow of a greater substance that was to come. A shadow and the substance comes in Christ. So to summarize... In the initial outworking of these promises, Abraham, who was given all of these promises, Abraham's physical descendants, the nation of Israel, marked by physical circumcision, was given a small piece of promised land in a still sin-marred world where they enjoyed times of blessing from God but continued to fall into sin and disobedience. See, rest of the Old Testament. But in Christ, Abraham's true children children of the promise, to use Paul's language, who are people from every nation and tribe and tongue, who are marked by faith like Abraham and have a circumcision of the heart, will be given the entire new heavens and new earth, free from sin, where they enjoy every blessing from and perfect fellowship with God forever. And at that point, we're back to Eden. Okay, humanity is back to Eden and fulfilling their creative purpose. At that point, in the new heavens and new earth, the work of the serpent crusher from Genesis 3 who is the offspring of Abraham from Genesis 12, has come, his work is done, the curse has been reversed, and we're back in perfect fellowship with God forever. Amen, right? That's what we're talking about. So back to my original question. Why are we celebrating Christmas? Okay, why are we celebrating Christmas? Why are we celebrating the birth of that nondescript peasant boy born in a cow stall in the Middle East 2,000 years ago? Because that baby, that baby is a very, very significant individual. All of the promises given to Abraham, all of the promises given to Genesis 3 about reversing everything that's wrong, all sin, 
being dealt with in God's people, through whom every nation on earth will be blessed. It all comes through that baby. That baby. That is why we celebrate Christmas. Because that baby accomplishes all of that. And nobody else ever could. Let's pray. Lord, your word is incredible. As far back as Genesis chapter 3, written 3,500 some odd years ago, you promised, Lord, you promised that you would undo all the effects of sin, all of the suffering, all of the brokenness, and you would bring us back into fellowship with you by your own gracious doing. And you have kept that promise, Lord. You promised it in Genesis 3. You promised it again in Genesis 12. We'll see in the future you promised it again to David. You worked it out through the suffering servant of Isaiah. And now we, who knew nothing of you, Lord, apart from your grace, have come to know Christ. We have had new hearts given to us. And all the blessings promised to Abraham, a new heaven, a new earth, a multitude of peoples brought back into fellowship with you are ours through Christ. And that is unbelievable. God, I pray that as we celebrate Christmas this year, that our love for you, our, our awe at what you have accomplished, our affections for Christ, our deep, unshakable confidence in your promises coming to pass, Lord, would fill our hearts. I pray that we would celebrate Christmas as people who have been given an entire world, a new creation because of your gracious love towards us. And Lord, we long for that. That is the promised land for which we are bound. That is where we are headed, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would give us an immense, unshakable joy <coughs> at that reality. Lord, you are so gracious. You are so gracious to a stubborn and rebellious people. And we love you, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' amazing, promise-fulfilling, covenant-keeping names. Amen.